0: This is our last day in here together. Next Monday, we'll be together again with the gals. So you'll need to go over to the gym for chapel. And I hope you've enjoyed this. I have. And I know that it's beneficial sometimes for men to be with men and to have a chance to discuss some things that are current and applicable to them. baby doesn't want to let go. I also want to say before I begin this morning... Thank you for your uh, immediate attention to the memo that I sent you as your dean of men. Most of you should have received by now a reference to uh, jeans and the dress code. And I want to thank you because I've noticed an immediate response and change to that. Now, I don't mean to say that all of you have uh, adopted a new direction, but I thank those of you that have. And uh, it was interesting yesterday. There we go. It was interesting, yesterday I came across a uh, particular note in a magazine that said, Singing the Blues, in reference to the blue jeans market. Blue jeans are worn by most students 70% of the time, according to the Levi Strauss survey. And and the average age of your oldest pair of blue jeans, if you're a collegian, is three years. And now get this, 43% of you who were interviewed considered blue jeans their best friend. (laughs) How about that? Well, we're sorry to take your blue jeans away from you in the classroom and in chapel and in the dining center. But as we stated in our memo, that's our preference. And we thank you for accommodating us in that desire. I'd like you to bow your head, if you would, please, as we look to God's word this morning. I want to ask you a question. Do you really love Jesus Christ. Down deep inside, do you really, really love him? He said in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he it is that loves me is the one who has and keeps them. And I want to ask you this morning, do you love him? And are you willing, as you're confronted in God's Word with His commands, willing to obey? If you're not honestly able to say what I hear this morning from God's Word, as it would be clear to me that it is His command and desire, I will obey. If you can't say that, you need to. And I want to remind those of you who... Are not willing to obey today that John again declares in his epistle, He who says he knows me and does not keep my commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This morning as we look to God's word, let's be willing. To obey. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to open your word. We thank you that you have given us direction, that we do not wander aimlessly without a guide. We thank you that we can not only turn to you, but we can look to you for direction and guidance for every aspect of our life. Help us today to be willing to be and to do what you would have us to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 28. On Wednesday, we discussed the fact that we all ought to be disciples. We all ought to commit ourselves to him to the necessary degree whereby we can become like him. And the process demands coaching in addition to commitment. And we talked about becoming a disciple. This morning I want to talk to you about becoming a discipler. More than just learning and sitting at the feet of God and more than just having my life built into by someone else, I in turn need to, as a believer, to build my life into another. I need to be a discipler. Read with me, please, Matthew chapter 28 as we read the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came up and spoke, verse 18, to them. And now this is after His resurrection. He's been resurrected from the dead in the earlier portion of chapter 28. He has met with some ladies. They have worshipped Him. And He has sent His disciples, you'll see in verse 16, to a particular mountain to meet with Him in Galilee. This is the last thing that He will say to them prior to His ascension. If I was dying or going away, the last thing that I would tell you I would believe would be the most important thing I could say. If there was anything that I would want to leave with you and leave it ringing in your ears, it would be the most important thing. The thing that really mattered to me. The thing that I wanted you to do or pursue. That's what Jesus is doing here. Verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Gentlemen, I want to challenge you to be a discipler today because the Scriptures demand it. First of all, Jesus commands it. Verse 19, go, therefore, and make disciples. Make disciples is an imperative of command. In the Greek language, this is the strongest way that you can say something. It involves a sense of immediate and urgent action to be taken. It's as if I were to say to you, get up and leave the room. A very strong, forceful command. Flip over to Matthew chapter 14, if you would. And I want to show you the same type of word used again. For those of you that are Greek students, this is an aorist imperative. And the aorist imperative takes on a an aggressive, urgent meaning. Action is to be immediately taken. G, Jesus is just fed the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14. He has sent his disciples over to the other side ahead of him, and he stayed behind to pray. And the incident involves his walking on the water. And in the middle of the night, the disciples caught in the storm, not able to make their way to the other side. Look, and they see Jesus coming to them in the middle of the night. And you'll remember the story how Peter saw him. And they first of all, they were afraid. And then the Lord calmed them down by telling them in verse 27, take courage for it is I do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now, notice what happened in verse 30. But seeing the wind, that is, Peter being distracted, he became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Lord, save me is aorist imperative. An immediate action is being called for. Peter's not saying, Lord, if you have the time or if it's convenient in a few minutes, could you pull me out of the water? As it would be convenient to you, would you take care of this need in my life? Peter's saying, Lord, save me. I'm drowning. Jesus is saying to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples. Urgent, imperative action is to be taken. The scriptures demand discipleship. Now I want to show you something in Matthew 28, for here we find the definition of discipleship. Many have defined discipleship in many ways. Alan Hadidian, who has written a very good book called Successful Discipling, has defined discipleship this way. Discipleship is that process whereby a man with a life worth emulating a life worth modeling, commits himself for an extended period of time to a few individuals who he has won to Christ in order to aid their growth to maturity and to enable them to reproduce themselves in someone else. That's a long definition of discipleship. But there's a lot of stuff in that that is borne out in Matthew 28. Notice what Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Now, here's the key word, baptizing. This participle modifies the verb and tells you the means by which it can occur. How can I make disciples? By baptizing. Let's go on. By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Another participle, of which there are two in this verse to modify that verb, by teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. I realize this is a little technical, but I like to know that the Bible tells me what I am saying. And what we are, what we are getting at, gentlemen, is, is that discipleship results by baptizing, and baptizing involves evangelism, right? You don't baptize people who you don't lead to Christ. And furthermore, discipleship not only involves the baptizing of men having had them converted, but it also involves the teaching of men, the training up of men in the way that they should go, or namely, in the things Jesus said specifically, that I have commanded you. Gentlemen, why should we be disciples? First and foremost, because the Scriptures command it. Jesus Himself, prior to His ascension, left His last words ringing in their ears, Go and make disciples by baptizing them, and by teaching them. Fair enough? Why else should I make disciples? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. I want to give you another reason. All under the major heading, why make disciples? Because Scriptures demand it. Now we're looking at the Scriptures that demand it. Number one, Jesus commanded it. Number two, Jesus modeled it. Because of His example, we need to make disciples. 1 John chapter 2, at the end of verse 5, we read this. By this we know that we are in Him. What is it that tells us we are in Him? Verse 6. The one who says he abides in Him, that is Jesus, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Question. In what manner did Jesus walk? Yes, holy. Yes, lovingly. Yes, as a servant. But gentlemen, yes, and above all else, He walked as a discipler. He spent His years building His life into the lives of other men. Jesus Christ was a discipler. And if a chief indication of our salvation and being a part of Him is evidenced in our life looking like His life, if we're to walk in a manner as He walked, we must be disciples. The word ought means must. It's not like we ought to if we have the time. We ought to because it's the right thing to do. The word ought is much stronger. matter of fact, you would find this word... In the gospel accounts regarding the response of the Pharisees to Jesus prior to his crucifixion, Pilate said, what should I do with him? They said, crucify him. He said, but I don't find any guilt in him. The Pharisees and the scribes took him away and said, listen, because he claimed to be God, we ought to kill him because the law demands it. Blasphemy. Now, the word ought doesn't mean, well, we might do this. It's the right thing to do, but we really won't do it. Ought means we must do this. And gentlemen, what we must do, if we're to model the life of Jesus Christ, we must become disciples. The second truth we see in this verse is, is if other men and women are going to model his life patterns, what must happen? Somebody must teach them how to do that. So not only does this verse teach us we ought to be disciples because he was but secondly, we must be disciples because if others are going to model His pattern and principle of life, they've got to have individuals to show them how. John MacArthur, our pastor or president of our school here, and the pastor of those of you that are at Grace, says this, Discipleship is the divine strategy for the continuation of the life of Jesus Christ. It guarantees the passing on of the patterns and the principles of His life discipleship, when I build my life into your life, the patterns that I have learned about Christ are reproduced. It's the divine strategy for reproducing the quality of life that we found in Jesus Christ. Why should I be a discipler? Because God commanded it, first of all, and second of all, because Jesus modeled it. And if I'm going to be like Him and walk in a manner as He walked, which is the thing I ought to do, then I need to be a disciple too. Thirdly, 2nd Timothy chapter 2. Turn with me there if you would. Not only do the scriptures demand it because Jesus commanded it and because he modeled it, but thirdly, Paul also modeled it and commanded it. 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Speaking to Timothy, his son in the faith, And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Entrust, deposit the things that you learn from me, Timothy. You deposit those things in the life of another. Faithful type men. The word entrust is aorist imperative. The strongest command the Greek New Testament knows about. Now, gentlemen, I ask you before we started, do you love Jesus? Evidence of our love is our faithfulness to obey him. The scriptures, perhaps more than in any other area, demand obedience on this issue. Why be disciples? We don't have any choice, gentlemen. If we want to be what God wants us to be, if we want to show our love for him and if we want to obey him, we've got to be disciples. Now, that doesn't mean you walk out of here and decide whether you're going to be a disciple. If you're obedient, you've got to be. you hear what he's saying? Secondly, not only must we be disciples because the Scriptures demand it, but I want to argue that we need to be disciples because reason demands it. You see, if the real mission of Christianity is to present the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ to all men, then it would seem logical, would it not, that God would give us a workable strategy to do that. Mark chapter 16, go and preach the gospel to all creatures. Would you not agree that that is tremendously hard task to do? And would it not seem that if God was going to require something so great of us as that, that He would not provide a strategy for accomplishing that? Wouldn't it make sense that God would give us a means to accomplishing that? Shake your head if you agree. Yes, it would, wouldn't it? And I'd like to suggest to you that discipleship is that strategy for realizing the Great Commission. I would like to argue that in no other way will it ever be realized until you and I take seriously the message of discipleship and the command of discipleship. You see, true discipleship involves what? Reproduction. Me leading another person to Jesus Christ, building my life into him to such a degree whereby he can go out and do the same in the life of someone else, right? That's reproduction. One person, one individual reaching another person and those becoming two. Those individuals having, if, if I complete the cycle and train this individual how to reproduce, then he'll do what? He'll go out and reproduce also. And in the meantime, I'm also going out and reproducing again. So it's multiplication type of reproduction. I want to, give you a few illustrations of the tremendous power of multiplication. There are two ways things can grow. They can grow by addition, one plus one plus one plus one, etc. That's growth by addition. Or they can grow geometrically or by multiplication. And I want to show you the power of multiplication. Let's suppose we take take Vance here. Vance gets a hundred dollars for his allowance. He gets it every week from his dad. At the end of the year, how much of an allowance has Vance received? $5,200, right? $100 for every week. Vance has received then at the end of the year, $5,200, growth by addition. But on the other hand, we have Steve here. Now, Steve worked out a different deal with his dad. Steve got a penny the first week, and then every week after that, an amount double of the preceding week. So the first week. Last week say Steve got a penny this week. Steve will get how much two pennies, right? Double the previous week's amount The third week. How much does he get four pennies? Okay growth by multiplication. Do you know how much money brother Steve will get in his 52nd week? Just the 52nd week alone not the cumulative amount brother Steve will get for his allowance 20 over 22 trillion dollars Neat, huh? Growth by mul- He made a good deal, huh? That's nice. He picked door number one. That's a good door. You see, growth by multiplication explodes. Another example. Suppose I took the piece of paper, tore it in half, put the top half on top of the bottom half, then tore it in half again. Okay? Because I've got one piece of paper becoming two pieces, right? Two pieces. Tearing it in half again would be four pieces, correct? If I can tear it. If I did that fifty times, if the cycle went on fifty times, I took the first piece, tore it in half, stacked it, tore them in half, tore them in half again, and stacked them again. If I did that with the leaves of the pages of my Bible, which are one thousandth of an inch thick, if I did that fifty times, do you know how, how high the stack would be? 17 million miles high. Enough to go to the moon and back 34 times. Growth by multiplication. If I took a checkerboard and laid on the first square a grain of wheat, and on the second square two grains of wheat, and on the third square four grains of wheat, each time doubling the previous amount, to finish the board it would take enough wheat to cover the country of Israel 50 feet deep. Now, all of that's wild and unique illustrations. You're going, boy, you've really boggled my mind this morning. The whole point I want to make is is that multiplication, growth by multiplication is explosive. Let's put it in the real world. Who would you rather be? Would you rather be an evangelist who leads a thousand people a day to the Lord every single day of your life? Would you rather be a faithful discipler who reaches one person a year for Christ? Who would you rather be? Don't make your decision too hastily. Let me show you something. got a little uh, overhead that I did up for this so you can see the tremendous strength and power of growth by multiplication. And I want to say to you then that the reason you ought to be a disciple is not just because the Scriptures demand it, but because reason demands it. There we go. Okay. I'm an evangelist, very gifted speaker in the kingdom of God. We're, we're just making a hypothetical situation, okay? At, I'm leading a thousand people to the Lord every single day. That's not bad, right? I mean, if I knew somebody doing that, I would think that cat's a hero. I mean, he's first class. When he gets to heaven, I can't believe the rewards that will wait on him. Notice this. At the end of one year, how many people has he led to the Lord? 365,000 because 1,000 a day, 365 times, growth by addition. The discipler, one person a year, okay, he's going to reproduce himself every year. The first year, how many of them are there? Well, the guy who discipled the person and his disciple. Two. Fair enough. At the end of the second year, how many will the evangelist have won to the Lord? 730,000. How many will the discipler have affected? Four. How is that? Well, the discipler has affected his disciple. At the end of the year, the discipler goes out and finds another person to lead to Christ and build his life into. And in the meantime, the first guy that he discipled goes out and does the same. So you've got one person becoming two, and then those two both going out and doing it. Thus, they become four. Fair enough? Are you following this? Okay, good. At the end of the second year, who would you rather be? The evangelist, right? I mean, if if you were going to die after, after the second year, you'd rather be the evangelist. At the end of ten years, the evangelist has affected how many? 3, 650,000 The discipler's got a whopping one thousand twenty four. He's killing it, right? I'd still rather be the evangelist. At the end of the nineteenth year, how many does the evangelist have? and thirty five thousand? The Discipler, 524,000. He's doing better, but he's still not there. Year number 20. Just a year later now. See our numbers? The Evangelist is still winning. He's got 7,300,000. The Discipler's got 1,048,000. Notice by the 25th year, five years later. Check those numbers out, guys. See what's happened? By the 25th year, the evangelist reaching a 1,000 people every day has affected 9 million people. The disciples reached up to 33 million. And then the following year, this is just one year later now, the disciples responsible for 67 million and the evangelist 9 million. What's the point? The point is this. If you really want to affect the world for Jesus Christ, if you really want to realize... the the fruition of the command that we ought to reach the world with the gospel, I'm suggesting to you that that strategy is discipleship. What does it take for me to get to those 67 million by the 25th year? Faithfully reproducing myself in one person every year. That's all I've got to do. The evangelist has to go out every day and win a thousand people to the Lord, and he still doesn't make it. Let me give you another illustration. Our world roughly has 4 billion people in it, right? Right around 4 billion. If, let's assume, our population growth stayed the same and we stayed at 4 billion people. If I was the evangelist leading 1,000 people to the Lord every day, do you know how long it would take me to reach a world of 4 billion people? 10,960 years. Impossible for me to reach the world. If I am a discipler, faithfully reproducing my life into the life of someone else to the tune of one a year, guys, one, do you know how long it would take me to reach the world if my disciples faithfully went out and did the same? 32 years. Now, suppose somebody today took up the challenge and in addition to me, made his life's commitment to build a disciple a year who will faithfully reproduce himself into the life of another, how long would it take them? Sixteen years for us to reach the world. Do you see what I'm saying? You see, Jesus was no dummy. He left us a strategy whereby we could reach the world for Jesus Christ. And gentlemen, if you want to do that, if your heart's desire is to be obedient to God and to preaching the gospel, the chief way and the most reasonable way to accomplish that end is to become a discipler of men. There isn't any option. But it sure helps me when there's some good reasons why I should. Let me show you one more overhead and then we'll quit with that. Take a look at These figures. I'm assuming, I'm assuming that you're 18 years of age today. You may be older. This is 1986. Okay, here we go. 1986, which you can't hardly see. You're how old? You're 18. In the spring of 1986, you'll lead one person. You start with one person. That's you. Okay. You lead another person to the Lord, and by the fall, you've you've now reached two people. The following spring, that other person you led to the Lord plus yourself leads someone else to the Lord, and you do as well, and you start in the spring then with four. You're 19 years of age. The process continues such that in the fall you've reached eight people, and then the following spring then you've reached 16. And you go on and on so that down by the time you reach 34 years of age, which is in the year 2002, you will have reached 4,288,000 million people if you faithfully disciple by the 20th year which is the year 2006 20 years from now look at the number if I can get it high enough for you to see you'll have reached 109 billion people Now there aren't 109 people in the billion people in the world. there won't be Lord willing by the year 2000. but the point is gentlemen you want to affect the world. Be a discipler. You want to affect the world, you find yourself one person this year and build your life into them. Just one. See, we got this mentality that we've got to reach hundreds and thousands of people, and I'm telling you the best way to do that is to disciple someone to the tune of one a year. Now, if you can get two, God bless you. If you can do three, that's even better. But at least commit yourself to one. Okay. I think I may have convinced you. I hope I have. I hope by the Scriptures, by their demand and command, you've agreed with me. Hey, I need to be a discipler. I just can't wander around and let somebody else do it. I must be a discipler. Furthermore, it's really reasonable, and I'd like to be the guy that impacts the world for Jesus Christ. I'd like to be that person. Believing you have agreed with me that that's the decision you'd like to make, I want to tell you how to do that in the last few minutes we have this morning. How do you proceed in this process of making disciples? I want to give you a few practical comments and principles regarding discipleship. Number one, first and foremostly, you must have a life worth emulating. You must be an example. Point number one. Remember what it said in 1 John? You need to walk in a manner as he walked See, I'm not fit to be a discipler if I don't have in my life the qualities and the characteristics of the Son of God. Otherwise, I'm going to disciple people in the wrong stuff. Luke chapter 6 and verse 40 says that when a disciple has been fully trained, he will what? He will be like whom? His teacher. If you're going to disciple others, you've better have enough of your act together so that you can model the right stuff in front of them. Fair enough? Second of all, you cannot disciple someone past where you are. It's like being an evangelist or being a witness to a crime. If you see something happen, you cannot give testimony to that which you have not seen, right? You can only tell them what you saw. And that's the way it is in discipleship. You can only teach someone what you know. You can't witness beyond that which you haven't seen, and you can't disciple beyond that which you know. So the chief thing then is is for you to take on those character qualities and patterns in your life that look like Jesus Christ. Walk in a manner as He walked, so that you will rub off on someone else the right kind of things in their life. Fair enough? Number one, be an example. Number two, Number two, select a disciple for this year. Select someone to disciple this year. Now, this involves many things, and I'd like you to write a few of these things down. Number one, if the strategy is really going to work, you need to disciple somebody you've led to the Lord. I mean, you really need to go out and lead somebody to Christ. Christ. Jesus said, go and make disciples. How? By finding a somebody in the school here who's already saved? No. By going out and leading someone to Christ, there in, and then the follow-up by baptizing them, and then teaching them. See, we get really involved with discipling one another. And a lot of you are involved in those kinds of relationships, just like I am. But if the strategy's gonna work, guys, Once a year, you've got to reach someone who doesn't know the Lord. Fair enough? So number one, your selection needs to involve somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And the way that happens is you need to go out and evangelize them. And I personally apply this practice in my life, and that is each year, at the beginning of the year, i.e. January, I ask God in prayer through several days and weeks, for Him to lead me to someone who I can lead to Christ and effectively disciple for the next year. Prayer changes things, right? I can't just go out and predetermine that guy is the guy I'm going to reach. God leads people into my life who are ready to receive Him. And if I faithfully witness to them and lead them to Christ, then it's that kind of person that has the kind of loyalty to me that makes a good disciple. Do you know the people you lead to the Lord are forever loyal to you? Have you ever experienced that? I mean, there are guys that I led the Lord back in college, and they still write me and still call me and still want to talk to me because they love me. All because I happen to be the one to share with them the tremendous news that they could be born again. And that loyalty never, ever dies. So first of all, select someone, an unsaved person, and you do that by praying, asking God to lead them into your life. Secondly, there's another characteristic in the selection process, and that is, and you'll see this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and that is find men with the quality of faithfulness. Remember what Paul said, and the things which you have heard from me in front of many witnesses, entrust these also unto faithful men who will be able to go out and teach others also. Your disciple, the individual who you're going to invest your life in, has to be a faithful man. Somebody who's willing to be obedient to the word, willing to submit their life to the commands of the scripture, who can go out and faithfully reproduce. Needs to be a faithful person. Now, I want to clarify something. I made a comment as to the to the the extent whereby that maybe the discipleship that we do amongst one another, amongst believers, is not as valid. I would like to argue that although it does not accomplish the strategy ideally, what it does do is if I build my life into someone else and they in turn go out and build their life into someone else, eventually the chain will work such that unsaved people do get reached. Fair enough? So if I find someone in school here who really is not doing too well, who really needs some direction in life, and I take them under my wing and I build into them Christ-like qualities, My bet is, is that ultimately they will lead people to Christ and they'll influence other people who will do the same also. So it is valid to work amongst one another. So, number one, be an example. Number two, make a selection. Pick somebody out, fellas. Pray about that person. I used to manage a sporting goods store in Lynchburg while I was going to seminary. And... Being the manager of the store, one of your responsibilities is to hire people. And I hired this young man who was a high school student at our major public high school in Lynchburg. And over a period of months, we had occasion to work together many hours. And it became clear to me that this young man, he was already a Christian, became clear to me that he really desired to grow. And I began asking God, would you would you make it such that I could have the opportunity to build my life into this young man. He's got quality, he's got character, and he just needs to grow up. But I don't really feel comfortable about going to him and saying, hey, listen, I'm a hero as a Christian, because that's kind of how it comes across sometimes. And I want to teach you a few things that you don't know. So my practice is usually to pray about that and let God make an opportunity so that it is comfortable and normal for me to pursue such a relationship with someone. So for the next two months, I asked God consistently on a daily and regular basis, God, would you allow me to disciple Glenn Shelton? Would you make an opportunity such that I know that you're in it, whereby he asks me to do that for him? Two months later, in the middle of the afternoon, in April, Glenn comes over to me and we were discussing whether he should buy a new truck or not buy a new truck. And he says, you know, I've been watching you. And I want to be like you are. And he said, would you help me become like Christ? Now, I had prayed for two months that he would do that. Do you think it was an accident that he came to me and asked me to build into his life? I don't think so. And it's not because I was a hero. It just so happened that there was enough of Christ in me that it attracted him. And he knew that in his life he would like to have some of those qualities. And gentlemen, I'd like to suggest to you that you need to be a discipler. And the way you need to do that is to select someone and pray for them. And allow God to make their hearts such that they will desire to sit under your ministry. There's another principle of discipleship that I think is very important. And that is this, that you find someone who has an affinity for you and your ministry. You see, not everybody likes everybody. Even amongst Christians, although we love one another, the fact is we don't all just harmoniously get along. Because I'm your brother, I may love you, I may be committed to you, but I may not really get a big charge out of being with you. Isn't that right? Sometimes that's the way it is. that doesn't mean I won't help you. That doesn't mean that I won't do my best by God to help make you more like Christ. But the fact is, you and I just don't quite hit it off. And I've found in my life in discipling that it's good to find those individuals who you have an affinity for, who you have kind of a natural God-given attraction to. Someone you think, you know, I like that guy. And I've always found by experience in my life that those individuals make the best disciples. They stick it out because there's a common ground there that God has provided just by virtue of your experiences and background and his experiences and together you kind of mesh make sense so so in your selecting not only pray not only seek an unbeliever but or and not only seek a faithful man but seek someone who you you like someone who you have an affinity for that doesn't mean you're best buddies that just means you can get along fair enough now Lastly, the most important thing, I think, what in the world do I do with this person once I've selected them and we've hooked up and we've decided we're going to have a discipling discipler relationship? What do I teach them? Remember, Jesus said, teach them all the things that I commanded you. Well, first of all, you need to teach them the basics. You need to teach them how to pray. And you need to teach them how to read and study the Bible on their own so that when you're not around, they can get something out of it. You need to teach them to study the Bible to the degree where they're not limited by everybody else's help so that they can actually open the Bible without our daily bread and without all kinds of help, and they can actually get something out of it. You want to make them crutchless. Does that make sense? You've got to make them an independent operator Apart from God and apart from fellowship in the church Does that make sense? You don't want them having to be dependent on Growing strong in the seasons of life To have an effective devotional time That's a good book Our daily bread is a good book But they're all helps You need to work your disciple to the point Whereby he can stand in and of himself in the Word Make sense? So you need to teach him to communicate to God And get stuff from God through the Word Thirdly, you need to teach him Christian character. There are things that are required of Christians if they're going to be Christians. Honesty and truthfulness. Discipline and diligence. Character qualities of life. Kindness. Watching over the tongue. All of those basic character qualities you need to build into your man. And by the way, guys, all along you're modeling it. All along. And then fourthly, the thing I look for, not only to do the basics, which include those things. And I guess this was the subheading under what should I teach them. So first of all, the basics and second of all, under that category, what I want to do is look for areas of need unique to that person. You know, guys, all of us has a sin which doth so easily beset us. For some of you, it's lust. Every day of your life, you struggle with a pure mind and a pure heart. Some of you struggle with being honest. I mean, you can't go a day without twisting or bending the truth. For some of you, it's not just lust and it's not honesty. But your problem is, is is that you can't seem to get over the fact that you're a stud, you're a hero. And wherever you go, you bear this little element and countenance of pride. And somehow you think that God has poured into you something extra special and there's nobody quite like you. All of us have a particular area that we struggle with. Some of us have more than one area. What I do with my disciples and I find extremely effective is to try to pinpoint what areas they struggle with and bring the Scriptures to bear on that area so that they can overcome it. If it's pride, then let's do a study on pride. If it's lust, then let's find out how to combat it and build a strategy to beat it. And all the time, I'm customizing my discipleship to meet the particular needs of the individual I'm working with. So not only the basics, the word, prayer, and character, but uniquely designed to meet that individual's personal needs. Lastly, what do I teach them? I teach them how to go out and do what they've done what i've done for them reproduce number 1 that involves evangelism your disciple needs to be an expert evangelist he needs to know the verses he needs to know the right way to 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 teach those verses or to present them and he needs to know to be how to be an effective fisherman for the kingdom of god how does he learn that through you and if you don't know then you need to go find out how so that you can teach him You need to be a disciple to the degree whereby you can be a discipler. Gentlemen, we must be disciples. And if in your heart you're not ready to be a discipler, I want you to know that you're in direct disobedience to the Word of God. Direct disobedience. Nothing could be stronger stated than what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Furthermore, You are defeating the strategy that God has given us to reach the world with the gospel. Do you know that when a person accepts Jesus Christ, they realize a radical transformation? They are never the same. They are free. They are able for once in their life to have communion with the one who created them. And they can walk in total newness of life. And you are the key to affecting that for our world. I want to urge you today. Take up the challenge. And be a discipler. Determine in your heart one person a year minimum. That's not too hard, is it? One person a year? And in 32 years, you and you alone could effectively reach a world of four billion people. I like that. I'm glad God gave us a means to accomplishing that. And you know a byproduct... The best friends I have are the people that have discipled me or I have discipled. The best friends I have because the fellowship with them is so intimate and so special. There's nothing like it in all the world. Gentlemen, be a discipler. Let's pray.